we open with a backdrop of a sprawling coastal city at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Large boats line the piers in almost too perfect organization. Several massive skyscrapers reach towards the sky as if monuments erected in honor of human tenacity. And around the peaks of these monuments, distant human-like figures hover in defiance of gravity. These figures clash with a small, bright, red burst of energy. Then again. But this time the explosion is larger. A building is damaged. Debris scatters through the air, and one of these flying figures is knocked a great distance from the skirmish. The others soon give chase. We pull back from the scene to find that we're viewing the city from the deck of a distant boat. As the battle continues in the skyline of the city, the shimmering outline of a man manifests in front of us. This white light steadily solidifies until before us stands a man, a wide, pristine white smile on his face. He wears an equally white and clean robe that flutters in the ocean wind. One hand on his hip, the other running through his thick golden hair, he glances back at the city, takes a deep, joyous breath, and then turns once again to us. Hello, I am Mr. Miracle, and you might remember me from legendary acts of heroism such as Sharkmas, The Rise of Voidwalker, The Betrayal of Kid Rocket, and, of course, Dr. Hyena Takes a Holiday. I'm here today to talk to you about a place that's very special to my heart, a place I'm proud to call home, and a place that I would certainly give my life to protect. Ladies, gentlemen, I'm proud today to introduce you to the world's front and foremost leader in cultural, political, and scientific advancements. Home not only to people much like you, but this city is a haven for countless metahumans and human-like individuals that simply want to find their own place in this world. He turns again and takes a longing look at the distant metropolis. Horizon City. Simply divine. Hello, internet people. My name is Chris, and this is a Critically Accursed podcast. Today, we are presenting the first episode of our teenage superhero tabletop RPG experience using the masks system of Powered by the Apocalypse. And today, the episode focuses on a prelude. One of five preludes, actually, for a longtime friend of mine. His name is Alan. Alan, please say hi to the entire internet. Hello, entire internet. (laughs) Isn't he great? So, yeah, hello the entire internet. I'm sure everyone is listening to this on the internet. They will be once it's posted. Yeah, once it's posted, everyone will listen. 
Yes, so I'm pretty excited for the debut episode. Alan, your character that you brought to the table that you chose to play, the playbook that you chose is The Doomed. And can you tell me a little bit about what's in store? What themes are revolving around the Doomed archetype for this game? So the way that I have flavored this character is really about trade-offs. So it is a character who has a lot of power, but gains that power through hurting things around him. Instead of just like, I'm a superhero, I can do these awesome things, like Superman can, without any consequences. Anytime he uses his powers, he has to be aware of what he's doing to everything around him. Because of the backstory that we've given his powers, his doom, so to speak, there's sort of two paths towards it. He can overuse his powers, in which case he will eventually become an avatar for a dark god and just absorb the life of everybody on Earth, thus bringing the god back to life. Or he can walk away from his powers entirely, thus angering that dark god and then being killed by him personally. And then the powers will be transferred to somebody else within his family. When we say playbook, playbooks are very similar to like classes in D&D, I guess. They give you basically a character archetype. And Masks is a very... It's a narrative system that focuses more on what do you want to do? What descriptively is your character technically capable of? And let's see if you do the thing or if the thing doesn't quite work out in your favor. As a playbook, the Dooms is kind of a archetype of hero characters in comic books. There, you know, there's a few published heroes in the world, not in the real world, but in the fictional world that you could describe as being very similar to the doomed playbook that you're playing can you think of one or two examples of like published characters that exist in fiction that you would call the doomed the, the easiest one at least just based on power set that comes to mind is rogue because she also has that idea of absorption of everything she touches which kind of makes her a lonely person in some ways mm -hmm. he has the advantage of it's not uncontrollable but in some ways, that makes it harder, right? Because every time he wants to use his powers, he has to consciously make that choice. It's not ever going to be accidental. Yeah. And so like in terms of power sets, your character is very similar to Rogue. I think in terms of archetype, the Dooms, even the art of the Dooms playbook is very similar to Raven. Oh, yeah, and for sure. I, I think that's where we get to the like, I oh, I have this like very powerful evil like nemesis <laughs> looming over me at all times and it's only a matter of time before i have to clash with this very powerful individual before i say farewell for this post-recorded intro to the prelude just want to say that the preludes that we have five preludes coming up this is the first of them and the preludes not only are an intro to our story but they are very much a test run for this podcast as a whole. It's a test run of everyone's audio equipments. It's a test run of my ability to edit effectively. The reason Alan and I are recording this particular intro in post is to show that we've enhanced our audio at least a little bit since recording these preludes. But Alan, I think we've talked long enough. Do you have any final words for the entire internet? Nope. Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> See you at the end of the episode. The one thing I do want to do 
is ask you, Alan, to tell me one interesting thing about it could be about the world. I'm more interested in about Horizon City particularly, but it could be about the world. One interesting thing in this futuristic age, either about culture, about the common technology. Just give me a nice juicy lore fact that I can have as canon in this setting. Um, I want to say that we've actually developed the technology to make real biomes, you know, like botanical gardens, aquariums. So they, they have them set up all over the place. Like, oh, you can go into the park and it's always going to be fall or winter. Like, it's always set up so you can go to whatever you want or whatever mood strikes you. That's interesting. I like that. So, yeah, like a lot of the parks are probably set up exactly like that. Yeah, so that like makes it easier. Like, oh, I want to go to the winter park. Um, and like, you know, throw snowballs or build forts or go sledding. You can do that any time of the year because it's always winter within that bio. So uh, in this 2171 setting of Horizon City, a place uh, now sporting a variety of established biomes, we uh, focus in on the life and times of one Tate Temple. When we talked earlier about the playbook, you gave me, you know, you circled those general descriptive traits on the look section of the playbook. Can you give me a, just a little bit more description? Like, this is Tate's first panel of his own comic book. What does he look like? So he's just gone through puberty. He hasn't quite, like, reached his full height yet. So I want to say he's right now about 5'2". He's got, like, olive skin from his Middle Eastern background. Dark brown hair. And he's got these really gray, darker gray eyes. He's still fairly lanky. He's still like he's growing still. So it's sort of like in between being stout and thin because it's just turning into muscle and height. He's in that weird, awkward <laughs> growth spurt. Probably like the first one too. rough. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that he wears unassuming clothes. I assume this is just like a singular colored like T-shirts and jeans. Like maybe a hoodie. Okay. Again, probably was a loner, so he probably just kept to himself to the most part. Although I want to say that he was friendly enough with anybody who approached him so that like he could spend time with different groups. Okay, a weird detail thing that I want to just expand on because I think it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned that he probably wears a hoodie. I think that makes sense. You know, a nice future hoodie. Uh, is there like a, a logo or a design on it or is it a solid color? I think he probably stays away from branding. But it's probably one of those zip-up ones. It's a fairly light hoodie in that it's not like really thick or anything like that. And it zips up the front. What color is it? A light blue-gray. And he probably wears like dark blue or black jeans. I, I think in order to get an idea of who Tate is at this point in time, in order to accomplish a prelude to dive into some of the things, some of the, the, the dramas that Tate is dealing with. I need to get an idea of what his day-to-day -day is like. What, what's his normal? Can you describe to me Tate's normal, not normal life on a day-to-day -day basis? He lives at home. He commutes to school in the morning with his sister, um, who again attends the middle school at this point, goes through classes. He's part of the, the go-home club, so doesn't have any sports or otherwise after-school activities. But once his powers started manifesting, he goes 
he he's found a few places where he can sort of be alone and figure things out. So the biomes, he likes the one that's fall-based, so he goes there a lot, and also the winter one, especially when he realized that his powers kind of take energy around him. It's different watching a tree that's just come into bloom die as opposed to one that is already resting and you don't really see a change. Yeah, so although it's doing kind of basically the same thing, it's just a, a visual. It's absolutely a visual. Like, right? It's easy to tell that something is going on weird when a kid is standing in a forest and all the trees start dying. But like in the winter biome, he can stand there and nobody would really know from a distance. Right. I was even talking about from like his own perspective, you know, not being reminded that he's draining the life of things. Yeah. I think like for him, it's if he can't necessarily see it, then he doesn't have to worry about it because it's a future problem. But he does know sort of the, the range of effects that he can he can do at this point. Because he's tried it out, right? He wanted to push the limits and see what happened. And there probably was something in the news about someone like destroying a portion of the bio, like one of the biomes, <laughs> leaving like just a swab of dead plants through it. <laughs> probably tested his like super speed and everything along the path behind him just wilted and died. He's never really used it around other people. So he doesn't know if it'll affect people the same way it affects plants and, and animals and stuff. I don't think he's actually used it around animals either for the same reason of he likes that he can't see the effects of it. So maybe he's been afraid a little bit of testing it like even near squirrels just in case they end up dying and he knows it's his fault. I also imagine that there might be, I don't want to say like a, a voice in the back of his head or even, I, but it's just like a yearning to like use these powers. Because I imagine like he's draining the life of things around him to like fuel, you know, superhuman strength and speed. And there's probably at least a little bit of a high that comes with that. It absolutely supercharges it. It's one of those things where the darker the surroundings, the brighter the light. Except he's the reason that everything around him is darker. And he's pulling it into himself. And he doesn't really see like that, that shimmering darkness, that warping of the world around him. But other people would see it if they looked at him. And they would see that he's not really making the world brighter he's actually dimming everything around him so although he's spending a lot of this time getting used to his powers and just like affecting uh, mostly plants around him i imagine that he's slowly getting used to this sensation and you know probably even for a little bit looks forward to it you know looks forward to like oh school's letting out so now i get to go to the, the neighborhood biome and start running around a little bit it's one of those moments where you can just kind of feel free where he just is himself. I think at this point in time, he's getting used to these powers. He hasn't told anyone or really talked to anyone about them. I don't think he, for the sakes of this prelude, necessarily knows anything about this opposing force or his family's history. Not, not even a little bit. I do, however, think that there might be at times when he's not using his powers or even times when he could engage in his powers and he chooses not to. That there is this, maybe just in the far reaches of his head, this this looming presence. You know, something just doesn't feel right, or he feels a little bit down. It's, um, I don't want to say like a sword hanging over his head, because I don't think it's that severe of a feeling. I was thinking of it more like, like uh, that voice in the back of your head that like sometimes tells you to do things, like the call of the void. Mm -hmm. He has that, except that based on his history, it's actually something real that's okay. telling him to do things. But he just hears it as like, uh, no, like I definitely shouldn't just jump off this, even though I know I'll be fine. 
it encourages him to get into situations where he would essentially have to use his powers. He likes using them, so he still explores and, and plays with them, but he hasn't been forced to, to do anything with them yet. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the interesting things is even if like he has that, you know, kind of in the back of his head, it's quiet when he's, you know, in- actively engaging in his powers. It's in that sense a freeing experience. You know, it's one of the, I from the sounds of it and what I would like to describe it as, it's like, you know, when he's using his powers in a very literal sense, he feels more alive than he he ever feels otherwise. Absolutely. Like it's I mean, it's very similar, I guess, to like doing drugs or what I've heard people say when they take cocaine. It's just it's not addictive in like every sense, except that it feels really good. So then I'm going to I'm going to see if you can do something a little bit out of the ordinary for this. But I think that plays into the thematics of um, masks as a setting, as a system. Oh, we went through his day to day life. Could you give me like a description of maybe his day-to-day life in terms of comic book panels. He wakes up, he, you know, slides out of bed. Then the next frame, you know, he's eating breakfast next to his sister. Absolutely. That, cool. So the first few, probably the same. It's him waking up in the morning, showering, and then breakfast with the family before everybody kind of goes off and does their own thing. He goes to school with his sister. And then you probably just see him, like, he's engaged in class, but I think it's one of the things that you would notice in the panels that he's almost always looking at the clock every time he's looking up. And again, engaged with school, likes to learn the new things, but is also just can't wait for school to be over so that he can go have fun with his power. Right. You get like between panels every once in a while, just a shot to the clock and it's only moved like in minute. Like he's a good enough student that he's never like in trouble or called out, but it's it's one of the reoccurring things. So you'd see that like throughout the day of just like him in different classes interspersed with images of the clock like at lunch he's just sitting alone eating his food again like in at the end of the day and probably the final panel actually is just like the clock ticking down and then as soon as school is over you can see him light up a little bit and he heads out maybe even like it's just that that one panel where the clock finally reaches the end of the school day. His eyes get a little bit wider and, you know, his posture straightens up a little bit. You know, whatever, whatever it looks like for him to look a little bit more vibrant. One person in the background of that panel looks a little bit more sluggish. Troopy shoulders or their backpack slides off of their shoulder or something like that. Mm-hmm. His eyes just light up and you, you see him smile. So what's it like when he... Uh, a bus out to uh, engage in his uh, biome busting. So I want to say that it sort of depends on, on his mood for the day. But what he'll do often is go for a run or, or bus to the bio, like one of the biomes, depending on which one he's going to. I want to say that there's one, like the fall one is probably close to school, but the winter one might be a little bit further away. And so if he's going to winter, he'll like hop on the bus and head out. Yeah, when he walks into the biome, he'll find like a nice quiet space and he'll like do some stretches and exercise. And then he just kind of tests his limits. So he he saw what he could do when he like fully unleashed, but he also saw what that did to everything around him. And so he's, you know, a sort of a methodical type of guy. So he's been testing the, the limits of like, all right, if I do just this much, how much can I lift? How fast can I run? How high can I jump? And if you go like to the trees or so forth in the area where he 
he tends to go, you'll see like marks on the tree of like how high he's jumped and, and things like that. Yeah, so it's all basically athleticism for him. For now, yeah. I mean, his powers are very physical based. Yes. And so he, as part of that, is sort of pushing himself physically so that he can, right? Like somebody who isn't a runner can go this fast. What if I like was already fast? How much faster could I go? How much higher could I jump? Gotcha. So if this were a comic book, we'd see cut to this winter biome and just like a handful of panels showing him, you know, sprinting or um, vaulting his way up a tree. I was going to describe this, but I think it's more interesting if I put this in your field, since these abilities come with a price for his surroundings. What are some of the things in these theoretical like comic panels, like in the backgrounds that we would notice as he's kind of pulling in the life force of his surroundings? There would be a very clear difference of like when you see him first arrive, everything is sort of clear and light, like bright. As soon as he starts using the power, every panel that he uses his power is always in a slightly darker shade. That's like a nice physical manifestation. And again, he doesn't see that. He doesn't see that the world is sort of warping around him when he uses his power. To him, it's just like, yeah, energy is flowing into him. He feels alive. But other people see, see that death and decay see like maybe after he does like a run up a tree or something like that see how high he can get like a a branch or a twig or something will fall or you'll see like just a little bit of gray in the tree Mm -hmm. i really like the idea of like if this again if this were a comic book the panels that are kind of doing this montage of his physical you know activity the color palette just getting a slight very slightly more muted the the further on it goes such that you most people won't really notice but if you look at the first panel compared to the last of the section there's a very noticeable difference now what's the evening like his sister probably does do some of those after school activities i imagine she's fairly athletic and social so she might be like part of school government etc and so what he does is he times all of this so that he can get home at the same time as she does um, that way, nobody really is like, hey, what, do, what were you doing? Or where were you? Or why are you home late? It's like, oh, yeah, how was school? Does it ever come up? Why? Like, obviously, she has after school activities. I, I feel like your parents, they'd be like, oh, yeah, she's coming home, you know, two hours after school because she's involved in this and this and this. But if you're showing up at the same time, has uh, Tate ever offered an excuse for this? Or is he just kind of hoping he gets glossed over? I think, like, actually, it's been glossed over because his parents work also. And so they don't come home until a little bit after that, even. So, like, if we're saying that, like, the school day is over at three and after school activities go until five, so they get home a little bit after five, and his parents will probably get home around six. His parents know that he has, he's friendly, but doesn't necessarily have close friends. And so, like, there's no expectation that, like, oh, yeah, like he was out with his friends or anything like that. So they probably would ask. Um, but not in like, a, oh, where were you kind of mode. It would just be like, hey, like you're home a little bit later. Uh, did you maybe make a new friend <laughs> or go to the library or like a hopeful sort of questioning? So uh, in these evenings, does your family get together for dinner or is it kind of like everyone eat on their own? Everyone eats on their own together, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, it's uh, called a dinner and then everyone splits up. <laughs> Exactly. Like, you know, food is ready and then it's yours to pick up and eat. You can sit at the table, you can sit in the living room, you can watch something, you can take it to your room, doesn't matter. But there is a food time. 
if we revisit the comic book panels describing Tate's day-to-day life, I would like to basically copy and paste him in bed, him waking up, him taking a shower. But instead of him sitting at the breakfast table or eating breakfast with his sister or what have you, instead of that, it's him pausing by the kitchen to see that there's maybe like his dad's coffee mug on like the the center aisle of the kitchen, steam coming out of it, obviously having coffee in it, a half-eaten bowl of cereal with the spoon out of the bowl and just like a puddle of milk around it eggs that are very slowly burning on the stove but no one to be seen or heard of you definitely go in and take the eggs off to stop the house from burning down for sure and then he'll wander probably into the living room or the other room and see if he can find his parents i think one of the things that he notices once he picks up the the pan of eggs is that that they've blackened a fair bit so they were smoking that it seems like they were left on the stove for at least a little bit and it, it might even register to him that it, it was might be even a little surprising that he didn't smell smoke until he walked into the kitchen given the state of the eggs yeah if he dumps them in the sink or whatever and then goes looking around he finds signs of people having woken up and like begun their morning routine his sister's bed is unmade his parents bed is made because one of them makes it every morning but there's just these signs of like oh yeah his mother obviously put on makeup this morning her makeup things are her makeup things that's what they're called <laughs> yes the makeup things are scattered around you know the, the the sink and the his parents bathroom his sister's backpack is already by the front door so she doesn't forget it again that sort of stuff so i'm looking around and it feels like everybody sort of suddenly got up and left yeah, kind of abruptly. And I can't find them in the house? No, no sign of uh, anyone in there. I'll look out outside into the yard and see maybe if something happened. You look out into the yard and you see your front yard covered in leaves, autumn leaves. And it definitely wasn't autumn when you went to bed last night. You know, I would imagine that he went to bed and it was comfortable temperature, maybe, I don't know, early spring. That seems like a good time to run tabletop games because <laughs> it's easy. But it's like gray skies, a little, little dreary, not too much, but definitely just like leaves everywhere, leaves blowing in the winds and no one to be seen outside. Emily is feeling surreal, so he'll call out. Mom, Dad, Sky. Like, he's freaking out, but he's not the kind of person who's just going to panic, kind of freak out. He's going to start like, all right, what's going on? Because this is super weird. Uh, He's like, am I dreaming? Is this like one of those lucid dream kind of things? He's going to try to fly because he hears you can do that in lucid dreams. (laughs) So he like jumps and puts his arms out. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he doesn't fly. The better question I want to ask is he doesn't fly. Does he fall, Alan? (laughs) absolutely like he jumps (laughs) and then just probably lands on a leaf and like slips and falls face first on the ground and this like pile of leaves comes flying up around him like a plume of smoke or whatever you see him lying on his back looking up at the sky and he's just like what is going on where is everybody 
And I, I think as he's picking himself up, he just now realizes how cold it is outside. I mean, it, it's obviously winter and there's a ton of snow on the ground. Oh, yeah. He probably notices his breath steaming. He's like, yeah. wait a minute. Wasn't it just fall? Like he'll reach down and pick up the snow. You're like, this wasn't there a moment ago. He feels the uh, tingle of frostbite just nipping at his fingertips. I mean, he'll reflexively make a snowball. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, sort of rub his, uh, do the, the comic book shiver thing where he kind of rubs his shoulders mm-hmm. and he still sees nobody. And I, I think as he's looking around, you know, and he's, he's holding on to the snowball that he's kind of just like rolling around into his hands, just, I guess, for something to do with his hands, he notices a uh, trail of footprints leading from the driveway to the sidewalk in front of his house into the middle of the road and down the roadway. He's absolutely going to follow them. Okay. Probably slowly at first, like just walking. Mm-hmm. But depending on how long it's take, he, he will break into a run. Okay, sure. So then to frame this again, kind of like comic book panels, because I kind of, I don't know, I like it for this. It seems to be pretty interesting, at least to me. It is very cinematic. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to, to frame this transition a little bit in terms of comic books, you know, he, he starts walking away from his house. And then the next panel is a wide shot of him walking down the middle of the road. Again, doing the, the comic book, clutching his shoulders and shivering thing, trudging through the snow. The next one is him at the same sp- uh, pace, but the snow is less and there's probably like a few leaves scattered in the snow and then the next one there's more leaves than there is snow and uh he's probably walking at a more regular pace and then i think the last one is where it's like actually autumn again full leaves on the ground and that's where he starts running i'm assuming are are the footprints still there or did they fade when the snow did the footprints are not there when the snow fades but by the time that I think it registers to Tate that there's no snow here, was there ever snow in the first place? What was I actually following? That he gets to his destination. He was just running. He's like following, following, and then he speeds up and then I guess he's there. So here's the fun question, Alan. Where is the destination? Where does this trail lead him? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Fuck you. You're the game master now. <laughs> I think what would be more fun is if it ends up at the estate, the, the manor house. Yeah. That definitely isn't here in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Because in the Pacific Northwest. You're right. That's probably better than anything I would have said. <laughs> and then what happens, Alan? Go on. You can just run this now. Can you give me a description? Outside, it's fairly wide. So maybe like 100 feet or so wide. It's got sort of that. It's not brick. It's this light, almost tan colored stone. It looks European. It has ivy going up the sides. It looks like it should be in the sunlight always kind of manner. It has fairly large grounds and estates. Like there are definitely some gardens. There's a maze in the back. <laughs> so you kind of have to. Yeah. A fountain, etc. Mm-hmm. There's clearly the main house right in the center, and then there's two wings, one on either side. When you're looking at it, there's a balcony from the second floor where like somebody could sit and, and look out on the road. How's it look on the inside as we, I would imagine, follow Tate, you know, from panel to panel, walking through some parts of the interior? There's like a big entrance hall kind of space. 
It is a mixture of light and dark wood. Like it seems like it wouldn't work very well, but it's kind of patterned so that it doesn't seem, it's not startling or jarring to the eye. It just kind of slides. The main hall is sort of painted neutrally, but the wings are each painted um, in more vivid colors, like blue or green or red or gold. So he walks in through the front door. There's the main hall. Off to the left is probably more of like a living room with like the windows open where you can sit and get really good light. Off to the right is more of like an old style gaming room where a future pool might be set up. There's like bedrooms and stuff. There's a couple down here. He'll probably walk through the kitchen because that'll be near the back of the house. And then there's going to be sort of like a solarium back there, too. So then we would see Tate like moving through the, the sanctum. He's been here before, probably when he was younger. Yeah, he's been here at least a couple of times. So he knows the place. It's familiar. Yeah. And but even then, when he's like walking around, looking around it, there's probably a degree of unfamiliarity about it. Cause, yeah, because he, he was been there when he was younger with his family. Like he's explored, he's run around and stuff, but it's always like it's been his uncle's house. So it's always had that like, this isn't my place. And there's probably rooms that he was told not to go into or places where he wasn't supposed to go. Probably they're like, oh, yeah, like, don't go into your uncle's study or his bedroom or stuff like that. So I think after Tate spent some time bouncing, you know, from room to room, uh, mostly around the first floor, once he ends up circling back around to this this big entrance hall, just as I kind of imagine he would after making his way around the estates, he, he finally sees something that stands out. So there is a uh, person standing on these stairs, a young girl dressed in servant attire. As he takes a few steps towards her, as I imagine he would, or just like focuses on her a little bit, he sees that it is his sister, Sky, and she seems to be healing a potato. Sky, what are you doing? Why are we here? What's going on? You, you see her mutter something, you hear her mutter something, but it, you either don't hear it right or it doesn't make sense or you miss words of it as she's just flipping like flicking the peeler very slowly across this uh steadily dwindling potato oh i'll walk up to her yeah you walk up to her and once you get within a few feet you hear her it never ends it never ends it never ends and she continuously flicks the peeler over the potato that's now become more like a potato disc than a full potato Question for more cinema. Yes. Uh, or more cinematic experiences, <laughs> mm-hmm. I should say. What color is her speech bubble? Oh, that's, yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks. These are the questions that I need you guys to ask. Wonderful. So, assuming that like Tate has been having the regular white speech bubble, hers is light gray. So, it's almost white, but there is just a little bit of gray to it. Like it's slightly faded. Yeah. What's what never ends? I'll try to take the peeler from her. Your hands grabs onto her hand that's holding the peeler. And as you do, she juts it like almost viciously. You hear the squirt of blood that comes as she basically disintegrates the what was the small amount that was left of the potato and peels into her hand. Jesus, Jesus. Sky. Well, I'm going to try to bring her to the kitchen where like a first aid kit is. 
yeah, you can start trying to drag her along, but you, you get a lot of resistance as she seems to start trying to pull you upstairs. Instead of saying it never ends, she's now saying you can't make it end. Put some like futuristic Neosporin and wrap it up in gods. Like, Sky, this isn't a bad injury, but like, what are you doing? The potato peeler falls to the floor with a very, I was going to say loud clunking sound, but I guess not. A very soft clunking sound, uh, almost forgettable and unacknowledged. Her arm that you're holding kind of just goes limp, but you feel a lot of force basically coming from where the shoulder, like the, the force isn't coming from like her bicep or her wrist or anything like that. It's coming from her body as she's trying to pull you upstairs. I will at least like try to wrap the, her hand in something to stop the bleeding, but I'll let her pull me upstairs. If it means that we'll get someplace where I can take care of her. I have a shirt, rip off a strip or something like that and start tying it around her hand, but her hand keeps moving, so I'm following her. Okay. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, yeah, that's fine. You begin, like, tugging at your clothes, and you find that your shirt rips a little bit easier than maybe you anticipate a shirt ripping with your bare hands. But yeah, uh, I, I think by the time you successfully rip off a strip of your shirt and begin banishing the wound, you, you, you quickly realize you can feel the, the, the warmth of her blood that's now, like, on your hands because you're holding on to her bleeding hands and i feel like the warmth of that blood is a little bit comforting maybe you hadn't realized how chilly the estate actually is it's revived a sense of comfort and warmth at the sensation so yeah also kind of disturbing like oh wow this feels good but also like this is blood like that yes by the time you like wrap her hand wound and she finishes dragging you where she, uh, apparently where she wants to go is uh, she she stops in front of the study that you were never allowed to enter as a kid. Your uncle's study, your late uncle's study. The door is closed with this like massive, really nice wooden door and she stops in front of it and very slowly but forcefully squeezes her hand away from your grip. You can't make it and looks at you. And it's at this point you realize that you're standing in front of your dad. He's also wearing, you know, servant's attire. Not a maid outfit, but, you know, like, like a butler suit. <laughs> and he has white gloves on his hands. But the one hand that you bandaged on your way up here, that glove is soaked red. Dad, what's going on? Why are you all here? And he smiles at you and he says, Son, destiny is a powerful thing. And he puts his bloodied hand on your shoulder and again, it's warm. He focuses in on you a little bit and he says again, Destiny is a powerful thing. And you hear the nearby door begin to creak open. Definitely a little freaked out by now. He's going to look in that direction and see what's slowly coming through the door. And nothing comes through the door. It unlatches, creaks open a little bit, but it doesn't fully open. He, in his mind, is like, all right, this is some sort of weird dream or vision. Even though I can't wake myself up, let's see what happens. He'll look at his dad one more time. He'll give him a hug. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, a yeah. little bit of grounding and then he'll 
go through the door. Yeah. So your, your dad hugs you back and, you know, it's a nice, comforting parent hug. Uh, I think as you like pull back to walk through the opening door that he does that thing with like his bloodied hand where he like reaches up and cups your face and it's gross and warm and squishy. He obviously there's no expression on his face. He doesn't know what he's doing to you, but you know far too well that he's touching you with a bloodied hand. Like, I feel like he's trying, even though it's definitely a weird situation. So I'm not going to, like, wipe it away or anything. Sure. You walk in and you you walk into this. It's not a super large room. It's a comfortable study. There is a really nice, like, mahogany desk all the way towards the back with windows that are curtained over. Displays on either side of the room. Bookshelves on either side of the door that you walk in. A really nice rug in the middle of the room. The chair at the desk is turned so the back is facing you. So you can't see who's sitting into it. But you see it shake, you know, every once in a while. As if maybe someone's like rocking in it. But you also hear this awful squishing sound that kind of pairs up with it every time it kind of juts or shakes. Again, what color is the sound in? Oh, the sound is this awful dark scarlet red. Uncle Taylor, is that you? The shaking and the awful sound subside momentarily. It pauses, but there's no response, and then it resumes. I'm making my way around the table. Does he turn the chair, or does he walk in front of whatever is going on? Oh, he absolutely walks in front of it. Cool. Like You can see him like enter, he'll call out, and then he sort of goes clockwise around the room. Mm-hmm. Until he can see what's in the chair. And I'm assuming just for drama, he can't from the side. Yeah. And so has to get directly in front of him. Right, right. And it's only until he's standing directly in front of the chair at this point, his back to the windows at the back of this room, that he's now looking down into this chair at the body of his mother, a very large knife sticking out of her collar. And she looks like she's just been stabbed tons of times jesus he's just gonna mouth is gonna drop open like you'll see his hands reach out and then you'll see like a very small speech bubble that's like mom her head twitches he will i guess step closer and and you feel hands on your shoulders oh my god i turn around freaking out (laughs) and as you turn around you see that it was both your sister and your father dressed in their servants attire that you've seen them before each having grabbed a shoulder but turning around it's them on either side and you're now standing in this room that does not belong in the sanctum it's this sprawling stone floored ancient room like there's there's dust visible in the few beams of sunlight that come in through the roof and sitting almost in the center of the room on this yellowish old stone throne is a man or something like a man with ragged gray skin he has he has no like shirt on but his lower half is it's not like a dress but it's almost like a a priestly attire i'm picturing like egypt as a theme but his head is elongated almost serpent-like with large dark eyes and in his hands is this object whether tate knows it or not this object is one of great importance not only to his family but 
to his calling, his destiny, to what's happening to him right now. Alan, what is the relic that is responsible for all of this? I was trying to think of it. I want to say an amulet of some sort. Maybe a statuette actually would be more interesting. Like maybe a statuette of what looks to appear like some sort of figure reaching down as if it's giving something. Because I feel like that one's nice and ambiguous enough that it could be, it's technically an idol of the god. But in its original form, obviously, it's him like reaching down and blessing people. Mm -hmm. But like his hands are cupped and it could absolutely now look like it's taking. And I think as the scene itself, but also as Tate focuses on this, the, the statuettes that this person, this thing, this entity is holding, it's oddly pristine for its surrounding perfectly carved version of a of a person you know a very attractive very obviously godlike person reaching down with these cupped hands and it is pristine compared to the surroundings it's impossible not to compare it to the entity that's holding it and just how they couldn't be more opposites of each other after focusing on this one thing that probably snaps tape back just a little bit is his father saying, don't worry, son, you cannot escape your destiny. And his sister saying, you can't end this. And their speech troubles like come from off panel. And then the next panel over is Tate standing between them as they take blades to their own throats and drop to the ground. Jesus. <laughs> it's a vampire all over again. Ah. Why must you kill my family every time? Um, Can just, again, in my head to picture, because I I like picturing this more as a comic book than I like picturing it as a real scene. But sort of what we were talking about earlier as a manifestation of his powers, how the panels slowly get slightly darker and darker as they go along. Mm -hmm. Can that have been happening with their speech bubbles? A hundred percent. Totally. Um, like, I, I feel like all their speech bubbles were in that gray that I originally described as skies. Maybe those last lines, they were actually black speech bubbles with white text. Yes, that yes. is exactly what I wanted it to be. Okay, Wonderful. Perfect. Great. Everything's coming up Millhouse. I love it. Then, uh, yeah, what's, what's Tate's response to this? He's freaking out. He definitely turns and sees their bodies, like, on the ground, and then turns to the entity who's in front of him and is just like, who are you? And what is this? What is going on? Yeah, and it, it speaks to you. Like, the text bubble is gibberish. It's symbols and stuff that don't mean anything. And to Tate, it's speaking in this language that he can't land whatsoever. I also want to say the speech bubble is, like, it's black-bordered, but yellow with black text. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. He, he'll take a step closer and be like, I don't understand. What are you saying? And even as Tate's talking and as Tate's moving, this entity continues to speak this nonsense. I imagine this probably goes on for, you know, a few panels, Tate closing in a little bit, calling out for answers. I think it does get to a point where, uh, feel free to reframe this however you want, but on my head, it gets to this point where you have a few panels of Tate closing in and just like shouting at this entity that's talking nonsense to him. And then you get to a panel that's just like a close-up on Tate and he's not saying anything. But how does he look? Like, what's his facial expression? I want to say that he looks normal, but his eyes have changed. Before, they were kind of this, uh, like a dark gray. 
I want to imagine that they are glowing slightly. Okay. Not like on their own, but as if they were reflecting something. Like you see him as if you were from the perspective of behind the entity. Like at first you see the entity and like him stepping closer and then it just kind of comes out and then you just see him standing over the entity and there's a reflection in his eyes of sort of, it's the color, his eyes are now the color of the speech bubbles. Okay, yeah. Or they have that like black border and they're yellow and then a little bit of black on the inside of that also. But he's not saying anything. He's just, he's clearly looking like something is happening. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So then the next panel is a close-up of this like reptilian humanoid that has the exact same eyes. And then the panel that follows is just text, but it's in the, the speech bubble of this reptilian creature that says, with a period after every word, I will take everything you love until you give me everything. And this is when you see Tate manifest his powers, because that's not a great thing to say to somebody. And so you'll see, it'll jump back to Tate, and you'll visit, this is where you as the reader see the air visibly warp around him. And he'll just say, I won't let you. Cool. Uh, yeah. What happens then? I want to say he wakes up in bed. Then uh, yeah, I do like that. So you say, I won't let you. And that's probably where the page turns. Yes. And the next page is him in bed. I think there is a small text bubble just in this, this entity's uh, coloring. It's probably even hard to see in this panel just based on like color choices and whatever. You really have to look around for it. But it gets reiterated in the next panel, which is probably like a close up of Tate or whatever. And it says, Your destiny is to destroy. You are nothing more than that. As I got shivers, not gonna lie, this was nice. Yeah. And uh as Tate I, I imagine startles awake, does he like bolt upright or he absolutely does. And then he kinda instead of doing his normal routine, he's gonna run downstairs and make sure his family's there. Let's see how terrible I can make the end of this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so he bolts upright. He's probably like trying to catch his breath and it's early morning. You know, it's not light out, but there's it's starting to get light. There's that wonderful early morning blue sky outside the window. Birds chirping um, or starting to chirp. And he gets up in a, this panic and his first instinct is, you know, go find his family. And he sees a figure at his doorway, his door, his bedroom door open. What's his first thought? What's his first reaction? I think actually, like if you're if you're looking at him and you see him like getting up and then there's like a shadowy figure, it would jump back to him. And I think you could see that glow in his eyes again. Yeah. So like he, he looks and I imagine there's like a little bit of just like maybe even visceral like anger or, you know, just like uh, primordial, I don't know, sorrow or anguish or confusion. Even the, the person steps into the room and it's Tate's mother who is looking at him and she her eyes are wide and her 
a mouth is kind of agape and her one hand is just almost violently shaking as she stares at her son in a deep mixture of concern and having noticed his eyes, fear. Pirates. Well, it was absolutely going to fade in the next panel and be like, Mom? I don't think it fades to the next panel. I think that's where the issue ends. Oh, that's totally legit. Yeah. Totally- yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of follow-up from this, what I'm going to ask you, Alan, to do is mark one on your doom track. Your mother is afraid of you now. She has insight in what's going on, and this is something that happens in your family. She knows now that you have access to these dark powers. And there's at least a little bit of fear in her of you. That is reasonable and also very sad. Yes, it's incredibly sad. Two more pieces of uh, fallout at the end of the issue to kind of wrap this up. One of the things that continues to, to play in Tate's mind is this entity telling him that basically it's his destiny to be a destroyer. You know, that he's nothing more than that. Although you, Alan, have every reason in the world to not care about what this entity says, in Masks, every adult character, villains included, have influence over you. What they say matters. Until it doesn't. And I think at that point in time, this ancient entity is exerting his influence over you to try to tell you who you are and how the world works, saying that you are nothing but a destroyer. He's trying to shift your labels. What you can do is you can accept the label shift, and I'll just tell you how to shift your labels and that'll be the end of it. Or you can attempt to reject his influence. Attempting to do that is a die roll, and you get to choose some things depending on how well or how poorly you roll. If you miss the roll, your labels get shifted and you take a condition. He's trying to shift your labels. He's trying to tell you that you're more of a danger than you already think you are. And in exchange for that, he's, I think, going to shift down, I want to say superior, because you're nothing but a danger. So there's, there's no reason for anyone to look up to you. I actually, I kind of want to take it, mm-hmm. but I want to reinterpret it. Okay. Depending on how you want to reinterpret it. Actually, I think that might be fine. Um, but yeah, follow, carry me on your train of thought. Let's go. Let's do it. So, like, this guy is essentially directly threatening me and my family and saying that I'm going to hurt other people. But like, I got these powers and this guy really, really pissed me off. So I am willing to be a danger, but like entirely directed at him kind of the idea of like you just pissed off the wrong person sure sure uh i think that if you're going to go down that there has to be even just this little bit in the back of his head that's like he's using this as an excuse to become more dangerous you know he's using this presence this entity pissing him off as an excuse to dive further into his powers he probably will like so that that makes sense in terms of like context if, if somebody's like, yeah, you're just a dangerous person, he's like, well, I'll take it. I'm right. just going to use it against you. Obviously, understand it. Like, I, as a player, understand that that means okay. that it's going to make things harder for other people, too. Yeah, that's fine. Like, in uh, character, that's how I think. I think it's appropriate. Yeah, okay. Uh, then if you want to accept that, so then shift your danger up one and your superior down one. The last little bit of wrap-up is, uh, because you're playing The Doomed at the end of every session, we answer the question, did you make progress on defeating your nemesis? You were introduced and I made a very visible threat that I'm coming for him. 
Uh, yeah, uh, just as a counter, I'm not saying you're wrong and I'm not saying I'm going to go with that, but just as a point of conversation, if you're using that as a, like, that's a step towards me defeating my nemesis, you're also accepting the influence he put over you, which seems to be exactly what he wants. Like, he wants you to become or think yourself more of a danger. That's what he wanted to accomplish. And you accepted that. Uh, what, what do you think? I'll leave the choice up to you. There's arguments on both sides, like you pointed out, and I think I'm going to leave it up to you. Because the fun thing about masks is you don't really win or lose. Like, yeah, you can get to a state where your character's not playable anymore, but you could technically win and have that happen, too. So this is a game that's really about what happens to the character, the character story. And uh, Alan, I feel comfortable saying whichever way you want to call this, I am good with. I think for this one, I think it's a positive. Like he has made progress because now he has somebody that he's working towards and who told him that he's only a destroyer. So he is going to try to prove him wrong and work against him. So like this is his impetus, I think, to actually start being a hero. Gotcha. And that was what I was coming up with, you know, as a very strong plus. It's like, now you know who to fight. <laughs> yeah, so uh, since you have made progress uh, against your nemesis, you can mark one potential, which means as a result of this session, you come out with plus one in your doom track. Um, your labels have shifted, plus one danger, minus one superior, and you have plus one potential. Hello again, it's me, the guy behind this adventure of heroes and hormones. If you're listening to this little speech, then one of two things have happened. Either A, you for some bizarre reason skipped to the end of the episode and decided to listen to just the last three minutes, or B, you listened to our entire first issue. If you're part of the latter, thank you for giving us an hour of your time. That's super cool. I really hope you found something worthwhile in the story Alan and I have shared. Community is one of the more enjoyable aspects of storytelling, and it's honestly a privilege to live in a world where we have the ability to so readily share what we're creating at our stupid little gaming table. If you are at all interested in what we've done in this issue or in anything that comes hereafter, please feel free to reach out to us. You can always bug me on Twitter at CAccursed. You can shoot us an email professing your undying love to criticallyaccursed at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on wherever you're listening to my voice right now feel free to reach out. Regardless, I want you to know that for as long as we run a critically accursed podcast, we hope to continually grow and improve and that we will always, always have a seat open at our table for you to listen in. That's our gift to the entire internet, apparently. So why don't we move forward together and see just how super the future really will be. Yeah, that was just as lame as I thought it would be. Great. Yeah, I'm really not good at this. So, uh, bye.